Last week we began Romans chapter 3, we went down as far as verse 19, and this morning we'll pick up here in the third chapter where we left off there in verse 20 and make our way down through verse 31, and rather than make you keep up and down calisthenics this morning, I'll let you sit and let's read our passage of scripture this morning. Romans 3, beginning in verse 20. Paul says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he who the God of the Jews only? Is he also not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And Father, we ask and pray for the just the gracious help of your Holy Spirit to be able to understand every thought and intent and truth and purpose behind this portion of your Holy Word that you've inspired by your Spirit and given to us to be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work to serve you. So Lord, prepare us accordingly. Give us that ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word. Bless your word and teach us through the ministry and power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You know, have you ever before had this thought in your mind or maybe you potentially have even asked a question something like this, what do I need to do to make things right? You know, maybe it's after some fight that you have with your spouse or a friend or a loved one and you're just thinking ah you know what do i have to do to just make things right so the 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 water settle down and the storm comes and goes away or maybe it's after a kind of a major mistake that you've made in your life and as a result you're kind of dealing with some of the the consequences and repercussions and you're just kind of inside thinking gosh you know what do i got to do whatever i got to do to just make things right what do i got to do to make things right well I'll tell you the most important time and I think the most important way certainly to ask that type of a question and to seek the right answer is in relation to our spiritual condition and in relation to our eternal destiny to ask the question 
How do I become right with God? How do I become right with God? Listen, the portion of Scripture in front of us that we're studying answers that question very, very clearly. How does a person become right with his God, with his Creator? This passage answers that for us. If you remember, by way of a backdrop, Paul has just spent, as the Spirit has directed him, the last three chapters, a lengthy three chapters, with a strategic purpose in the way he's been writing to thoroughly prove and validate the guilt of all of humanity before God as a sinful people. In fact, the last thing he has just said prior to our portion of Scripture this morning, there in verse 19, if you glance back at it, is he has just said, we've said all these things so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, everybody can become silent. No more excuses, justifications, reasonings. Well, I'm not as bad as this person, and I don't do what that person does. And he says, so that everybody can just be silenced. The prosecution rests, Paul says, verse 19, so that all the world may become guilty before God. Now, when we come to the conclusion that all the world and every person in it is guilty before God, sinful, fallen, that we make mistakes, that we all fail, and as a result, we bear guilt before a holy God. An obvious and important question directly after that reality sets into the human heart very simply becomes this, is okay then, so how does a person get released from that guilt? If I'm guilty judicially before a holy God and facing the punishment consequence of that, and if I am guilty experientially and I feel grieved in my heart because I'm carrying around a weight of guilt in my heart and in my emotions and in my mind and I'm struggling with that as every person does, how do I get released from that guilt and become right with God? Because one day, reality is, every person will stand before God as a just judge to give account for their life. The Bible says it's appointed for all men to die once and then the judgment. It's appointed 10 out of every 10 people die and 10 out of every 10 people that die stand before God to give account for their life as a just judge for how they lived in this life. And if you are not adequately prepared before you breathe your last breath or before Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, then the reality is you will face the eternal consequences of your sin to be cast in a just place where you should be if you reject God and his forgiveness and provision to be made right with him through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has just said that the law of God is what reveals to us God's righteous standard and proves, he said in verse 19, that everyone's guilty. So the law indicts everyone under the same judicial charge we saw last week, that all are under sin. We're under the power of sin, dominating and controlling our life. We're under the penalty of our sin. And as a result, we are all guilty as charged. And as we said, that word guilty in our text there in verse 19 last week, it means to be liable to pay the required penalty that is due for our crime before a just judge. We are all in that same condition. The problem, which takes us to where we go this morning, is this. Though I am liable and I am responsible for my own guilt and sin and mistakes, by the same reality, I don't have what it requires to make myself right with God. I'm responsible for my sin, 
but I don't have in and of myself, nor does anyone, what it requires to have a release from the penalty of the guilt and the punishment that I deserve for my sin. And because we're not born in right relationship with God to start out with, we must be brought into right relationship with God at some point in our life. This is what the Philippian jailer came to recognize where in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer was strongly convicted with the guilt of his own sin as a person before God. And he cried out saying, what must I do? to be saved and that's the question the bible basically is answering here for us what must we do to be forgiven of our sin we all know we're sinful what must we do to become right with god because we're not born right with god what must we do to be released of our guilt and have the assurance of heaven well verse 20 he begins to talk to us about that verse 20 draw your attention there he says therefore by the deeds of the law by observing the requirements of god's law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin so the first thing the Bible says to us in answer to what must I do to become right with God? How do I become right with God? The first thing the Bible says out of the gate for us there in verse 20, the point is simply this. Though the law of God is helpful in that it reveals our sinful condition, the law of God, the Bible says, cannot resolve our sinful condition. Let me say that again. The law of God reveals our sinful condition but the law of God cannot resolve our sinful condition. The Bible is very clear here. It's direct and in many other places that becoming right with God is not experienced by human efforts or religious observances or good works or deeds, or, wonderful as they may be. But he says here in our text, by the deeds of the law, that is by doing and performing things required even in God's law, he says, even in doing those very things, no flesh, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Now, take notice of that word justified there. You might want to underline it or circle it if you do such things in your Bible. That's the first of five references to this idea of being justified in this very section of Scripture that we're looking at. And we'll see many more ahead. And we're going to talk later in our study a little more in depth about what this justification is and we're going to keep the bulk of our time in our first few verses here so don't panic if it seems like how are we ever going to finish the latter few verses but it's important to talk about what this means but just in light of moving forward with where we're at when you hear the word justified for the given moment i want you to think in essence of the word justified being to be made right with god to be made right with God or to be righteous in order to stand before a holy God. This is the idea. When he says that no one is justified in God's sight, no one is made righteous to stand before a holy God in his sight. No one is made right with God. He's saying apart from anything other than faith, he's going to say in Jesus, but he says it cannot come, notice, by the deeds of the law. It cannot come that way. He says, by the deeds of the law, no one can be made right in God's sight. No one at all. So the question then comes to mind, well, wait a minute then. So what's the primary function of the law of God? I mean, our whole Testament scripture is all about the Mosaic law and God giving the law to the Jewish people. So what's the primary function of the law? Certainly it was a moral code, but what was the primary function of the law then if, if it can't make a person right with God? 
Well, here the Bible is telling us as well that the law was given as a standard of righteousness to measure or indicate to us our guilt and our shortcomings of God's righteous standards. The law was given to reveal sin and to help people recognize that they are sinners. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 20 there? He says, for by the law is the what? Knowledge of sin. It's through the law of God that it helps a person to become aware that they fail to keep God's standard. When a person sees a law, as, let's put it this way, as you're driving down the road, we have a thing called laws and speed limits, right? And who has not been cruising down a road before that maybe you're not familiar with, and once you see the speed limit sign that says 35 as you're going 85, running late to work, all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I guess I'm breaking the law right now. That speed limit sign basically revealed to you the knowledge that you're doing something wrong. It it's an indicator to you. And this is the idea. The law of God is, is God's righteous standard that he set before humanity to say, listen, as you try and keep this, you will realize very quickly that you fail to keep it perfectly that you quite often frequently fall short. You are unable to attain its requirements. Did you ever notice that in the Old Testament, the law was given, and then what came right afterwards? The sacrifices for sins. So God says, hey, here's the standard, and here's how you do the sacrificial system because you're never going to keep the standard. And so as soon as you fail, I want you to realize this is what you need to do now in order to experience forgiveness for your failures and shortcomings. So the law serves its primary purpose when it makes a human being realize their guilt, when it makes a person recognize that they are a sinner and therefore it drives them to seek a savior. It's a standard to say, look, yes, you fail, you miss the mark, and therefore to have a sense of, oh my goodness, then I need forgiveness. I need someone to save me from my sinful condition. The law indicates and reveals our sinful condition, but it cannot resolve our sinful condition. Again, if I can illustrate it this way, you know, when you're sick or you're not feeling well, it's like a thermometer. You can put your thermometer into your child's mouth, and when you do that, it indicates that they have a fever, which may indicate they have an infection. But once it reveals that they have an infection or a fever, they're not well, you don't say, now, now Johnny, just go ahead and chew that up. Right? I mean, who would just chew that? You need to get better, so chew up the thermometer now. That wouldn't do anything. That'd make them worse. That would make them worse. That thermometer indicates and reveals their condition, but that thermometer can't resolve their condition. They need something different. They need an antibiotic to be healed of their condition. Same way with God's law. When people are revealed that they're sinful by the law, but then they try and keep laws and rules and rituals to become right with God, that's not making them better. Honestly, it's making them worse. Because it's a deception in the mind to think if I just do enough or I do this or I don't do that, somehow I'm going to get right with God. It becomes a very wrong concept. The Bible teaches we cannot make ourselves right with God and can't solve our dilemma. We can become aware of our sinful condition and its eternal outcome, but we can't fix ourselves. We can't resolve our situation or reverse it. It's, it's like sitting in the doctor's office Again, and having them give you the prognosis that you have a terminal disease. And after they tell you you have a terminal disease, you ask the right question. You say to the doctor, well, what do I need to do? 
And the doctor might say to you, there's nothing that you can do. No, there's got to be. What, what, what can? There's nothing. There is nothing that you can do. Nothing at all. And in the same way, spiritually, here we are. We realize that we're sinners. We have the guilt of our sin. We say, what, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And God says, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself spiritually well and get rid of the cancerous disease terminally of your sin. But there's something that's been done, God's going to say, that is available for you. That's what our text begins to go on and to address for us. He says, verse 21, but now, nothing you can do. Oh no, nothing I can do. But now, he says, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So though presenting to God human works and efforts and righteous deeds and religious observances, saying prayers, reading Bible verses, attending church services, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, uh, doing helpful things for people, but presenting God human righteousness, the Bible says, is not acceptable. It's not sufficient. It's not good enough. Again, what's good enough? I'm good. Well, well, who decides what's good enough? We're talking about God. We're talking about perfection, the holy, righteous standard of a righteous, holy God. Though those things are not good enough, he says, yet God has graciously revealed to us that he offers a cure that is perfectly suitable for our spiritually cancerous condition that makes us all eternally, terminally ill with the consequences of it. He says, verse 21, now he says, there is a righteousness of God, not a righteousness of humanity, a righteousness of God that comes, notice, apart from the law. So God's seeking to reveal to human beings that there is something available that they can receive and encounter. And he says, it is the righteousness of God. Notice those terms, the righteousness of God. In other words, it stems from God. The origin of this righteousness stems from God himself. It has a divine source. It's the righteousness that God himself possesses. It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness that he then supplies as a gift, and it comes from his son, Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the righteous one. The sinless son of God, the righteous one, is the one who we see in our text ultimately gives us this righteousness. So again, the righteousness that we're talking about here, the righteousness of God, is something that we receive from God. It's not something that we we earn before God. It's not something that we achieve. He says in our text here, verse 21, notice it's apart from the law. It's set apart from the law. This righteousness, he says, it has a source separate from God's law altogether and from keeping the requirements of God's law. Because many times that's what people think. Well, if I keep requirements, I can make myself right. Isn't that just a common natural mentality? Well, and you'll talk to people. I'm kind of, I'm weighing out my good deeds and my bad deeds. I'm hoping eventually I've done more good than bad. And somehow we think by keeping some checklist that we believe in or someone else has told us about, and if we keep enough requirements... And God's saying the Bible has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with supplying any part of your own righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we earn. It's not something, well, if I do this or I don't do that, I somehow I ultimately earn 
a right standing before God or, or that some way we can produce by how we live. The reason, again, is human righteousness is just not sufficient to meet God's holy standard. Isaiah the prophet said it this way. He said, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. In other words, as human beings, our best efforts on your best day, our absolute best day with the best performance ever possible, God says that still, it's like filthy rags in consideration of my presence and what the standard is. It's just not sufficient. It's not acceptable before a holy God. So God, therefore, offers what is acceptable, and that's his righteousness. It's the righteousness of God himself that he gives us to make us, in a sense, become acceptable, and it's what's necessary for us to receive. Again, an important point by way of application as we look at this is remembering that as human beings, we must set aside our efforts to try and make ourselves somehow acceptable or right uh, or somehow approved to God, we must actually set aside our efforts to make ourselves right and acceptable by what we do and instead receive God's terms of how to become right with him, which is to receive his righteousness and to let us become acceptable. Paul's going to later say this in the 10th chapter of Romans. He says, Romans 10, 3 and 4, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, listen to what he says, seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Listen, are you trying to seek to establish your own righteousness? Think you have to earn God's approval or that you actually could make yourself acceptable to God? The Bible says be careful of that. Don't try and establish your own righteousness. Realize, God, my righteousness falls way short. I still fail, but I'm really thankful for your righteousness that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ, and I submit to accepting that humbly as like a filthy beggar who needs help and needs assistance. So though the righteousness of God, its reception and source is separate from the law, notice he also says, verse 21, however, it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures testified to the very fact of the righteousness of God that would come. When you study the Old Testament, you see that God revealed, even in the Old Testament, that people would become just or righteous by their belief in God's promise. We'll see more about this next week as God gives examples of, in chapter 4, Abraham and how he believed God and God accounted him as righteous. And David, how his faith is what ultimately made him righteous. Also in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God was testified or witnessed to because it was portrayed in the Old Testament that God, and it was clearly told, God would send a Savior one day to save man from his sin. It was pictured in the law and sacrifices and the feasts. We are seeing this on Wednesday evenings, Christ revealed throughout the Old Testament. It's portrayed in, in men like David and Moses and Joshua who are pictures of the coming Savior. And in a predictive way, it's spoken of in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 7 and 53. Places like Zechariah 9 and Micah chapter 5, there's clear predictions of a coming Savior. He goes on, verse 22, to then say, even the righteousness of God, notice, here's how it comes, how it's received through Faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who 
believe. So here we see how the righteousness of God is received. Here's how it's experienced. How we actually come into experience of the righteousness of God in our account. It can't be earned or received by our efforts, but it can be something that's disposed to us as a gift. Notice, through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's God's solution. He's God's savior. God in his incredible love, though sinful humanity rejected him and turned away from him, God in his incredible love sent Jesus to rescue us from our guilty fallen position rather than abandoning us, God, that we might be forgiven and so that we could be made right with him, sent Jesus Christ so that we could have relationship with God on this earth now and be prepared to be in the presence of God eternally in heaven. Jesus, as God, was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin woman. God came and dwelt among us as man, lived among us, and Jesus, as a man, lived perfectly, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that no other human being does. He lived the sinless, perfect life that's required for the perfection of heaven. And then after he lived perfectly and satisfied justly the requirements of the law, Jesus then, as the innocent one, did what? Died substitutionally in our place. And he took the wrath of God and the punishment for sin to be able to make perfect payment. The Bible says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all and then raises the third day, defeating the power of sin and Satan and death, and now as a risen victorious Savior, has the just and authoritative right to therefore forgive any person's sin, to give any person the gift of eternal life that he possesses, and to bring men into right relationship with God. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, it's the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews 7 that he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. This is what Jesus meant when he, when he very confidently declared in John chapter 3 those famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, what? Believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into this world to condemn it, though he could have, but he sent his son that the world might be saved through him. So when a person comes to a place where we put full confidence in and full trust in as a sinner in Jesus Christ, relying upon what he did for us, and we put faith, full reliance upon, Lord, I can never be made right with God by what I do, there's no way, but I trust fully. I rely completely upon what Jesus Christ has done for me. When that happens, forgiveness and salvation is experienced. And this, the Bible is saying, is how a person becomes right with God. This is how a person receives the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made him, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's a great verse because it describes the great exchange. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become the offering for sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's very simply this exchange. 
when you as a sinner go to Jesus Christ, relying upon him as your savior, you give to Jesus all your sin. And he says, I'll take all your sin. And he gives to you all of his righteousness. And he says, here, I'll give you all my righteousness if you'll give me all your sin. Man, I don't know about a better deal out there going. <laughs> For completely free, Jesus takes our sin and gives us the righteousness of God so we can have access to God now in relationship and we can have access to enter into heaven freely as a result of what he done. This is what Paul's saying to us here. This righteousness of God, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice, to all and on all who believe. On all who believe. Picture in your mind like a royal robe draped around you you're a beggar you come in as a peasant and you can't approach a king you don't have the right to approach a king but then the prince the son of the king says listen let me put my robe around you and with that authority and that position the royal garments you can go directly to the access to the king's throne because and that's exactly what jesus has done for us giving us what's necessary to approach god that's why jesus said i am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, Paul goes on to say there, verse 22, for there is no difference, notice, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Now, that's quite a mouthful there. One long continuous sentence in the Greek, but Paul here shows us in a judicial sense how God has a just basis, and we must understand this, how God has a just basis to be able to make us as guilty people innocent or righteous through our faith alone in Jesus Christ. He tells us that here in our verses. The first thing he's pointing out, the reason God has a just basis, is because everybody's on level ground. He says to us here in verse 22 and 23, all people are equally guilty. He says there's no difference, he says, among anybody. He says we've all sinned. Again, the word in the Greek is to miss the mark. There's a bullseye and you're trying to hit the mark. And he says, look, you know, Brett may be a great marksman, so he hits that thing nine out of ten times. He's really good. And he says, but yet eventually, even though he's good, he still misses. I picked a thing up and I missed the thing nine. I can't even hit the bullseye. I shoot Brian the first time off and kill him over there on the other side of the room. And he's like, you miss every time, man. You fail all the time. You fail nine times out of ten. At least he only fails one out of ten times. But the truth of the matter is, we're both still failures. We're both still failures. We still both miss the mark of perfection. It happens. Interesting, he says, for all miss the mark, and he says, and all fall short of the glory of God. The Greeks in the present tense, the idea is we keep on falling short of the glory of God. Please remember that even if you're a Christian this morning. Amen. We all keep on falling short of the glory of God. The standard is here. Look, you can go out and try and jump off a dock at one of the beaches here and, and launch all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And you may do really good. Maybe you're an incredible top-notch athlete and you, and you could jump 28 foot out in that ocean. Somebody else comes along and you know they're 82 years old and they can barely take a step off and they fall. And they go, man, I jumped way further than you did. Right, 
but we both still fell way short of launching all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. The standard is far too long for any of us to hit. We all miss the mark. We're all equally guilty with the exact same need of forgiveness and failures and mistakes, and it deserves the same punishment. Yet, he says, through faith in Jesus, we're justified freely by God's grace. Through what Jesus has done, we can be made right with God. But the first question we have to ask is, wait a minute, how can a God being just and holy and righteous freely offer, freely, to guilty people? How can God be a just judge? Listen, any good judge doesn't let a guilty person just go free. He can't. That's not a good judge. That's not a just judge. We are guilty, and our sin must be punished. We must realize this. God can't just wink at sin because he's loving He's a just, righteous judge. That way, Sin must be punished. It must be punished. And this is what God is telling us. The glorious answer in news is the payment for our sin's crime was supplied in what Jesus did for us personally. When he came and died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he says we're justified or made right with God, verse 24, freely by his grace through the redemption, verse 24, that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, two words here in our text that contribute to making justification by faith possible. The first is redemption. The redemption of Jesus Christ. That's a term that speaks of paying a ransom as a payment to set a slave free. That's what the word redemption speaks of. That Jesus Christ did what was necessary in his sacrificial death to set us free as spiritual slaves. That's what the Bible tells us that we are. Whether we recognize it or not, listen, I understand the shackles are invisible. I'm not a slave, man. I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave. I can stop doing this anytime I want. I'm not a slave. The Bible says, listen, you may not see the shackles, but the Bible says whoever sins, Jesus said, is a slave of sin. We, we are all enslaved to sin's power dominating over our lives until Jesus Christ liberates us and sets us free. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus paid the ransom, the redemption price to the great cost of his death to purchase our freedom, to liberate us so that we don't have to live enslaved to sin. Paul's going to talk about this later in the book of Romans where he's going to say sin no longer has to have dominion over you. If you're a Christian, he says live out the reality of your spiritual experience. He says you're not a slave to sin anymore. Christ has set you free. Live in the freedom, the power and victory of Jesus Christ that's available to you. But this comes only because Jesus provides release from spiritual bondage. And man, I think, hallelujah, that I, I, I don't have to be a slave to something. That Jesus can release me from the spiritual bondage of life-dominating habits and things that dominate and control our lives and powers that would rule over us in different ways. That he's came to redeem us by the ransom price of that. And the second word we see here, the big word propitiation, God's made propitiation through the blood of Christ. That word propitiation is a word that means to make satisfactory payment. To make satisfactory payment to resolve tension between two parties. It indicates how the blood of Jesus that was shed upon the cross in his death was acceptable to effectively satisfy the righteous requirements of the law that God upholds and that we violate that causes tension between us as creator and creation. That his blood 
adequately removes that guilt that stands between us and God as a barrier because of our sins and offenses against him. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, Jesus shed blood provides the removal of our guilt. It takes away that barrier that's there. I love how Paul speaks of this in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to how Paul describes this. He says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, Paul's using language they understood in that day, which referred to what was called a certificate of debt. If you became a criminal in society, let's say I'm walking through the marketplace and you know Tracy's got her little apple cart there and, and I decide you know I'm going to go over and slip on that. So I, I get caught robbing a few apples from her apple cart and so I already committed one crime. I've, I've committed theft and then I'm you know running through the, the marketplace and as I'm running through the marketplace, here's some elderly person and I knock them over and I break their hip and so now I've hurt somebody and, and so by the time the whole thing's done, I've committed three, four crimes. Eventually they catch me. So the crimes are clear. Okay, you've committed this, you've committed this, you've committed this and here are what your, your punishments are. In order for, for theft, it's this many weeks in the prison. For, you know, for you know, hurting a person, it's you know, this many months in the prison. So my, all my mistakes and crimes are listed out and then next to it, they would write on your certificate of debt, they would write the corresponding punishment or sentence of how long you had to stay in prison as a result of that. You would then be put into a jail cell and they would tack that up outside your cell. So somebody couldn't go by and read. The reason why this guy's in prison is because he committed that crime and therefore that's part of a sentence. And he committed that crime and that's part of a sentence. When you completed your time in prison and finished your sentence and you got out, they took your certificate of debt and they wrote across it, Tetelestai, which in essence translated meant paid in full. And they gave it to you as the one who committed those crimes. The reason they gave it to you was so that you could never be tried again for those same mistakes that you made. And if somebody says, hey, you're guilty of this. You, hey, I know. But look, paid in full, man. I know what I did. I know what the punishment is. But the penalty has been paid. Paid in full, tetelesta. You, you can't try me again for being guilty of these same things. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said the three words we have in English, it is finished. Do you know what he said? Tetelestai, paid in full. Paul's saying here the righteous requirements, the handwriting that stood against all of us as criminals and violators, our certificate of debt, and you have one. You have one. Everyone in this room has a certificate of debt. But Jesus Christ, he said, took our certificate of debt. He wrote across it, paid in full, when he nailed it to the cross, and he says, wiped away. You can't be punished for those sins you committed because I was punished for those sins you committed. You can't be eternally damned because of what you've done wrong because I took the eternal wrath of God on your behalf for that. And he offers us the certificate of debt and he says, here, you're, you're paid in full and you keep that. You keep that by faith because I nailed that to the cross for you. I took that on your behalf. And see, this is why the resulting effect of salvation is what it is. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. Paul here is describing the resulting effect 
of what happens when we're saved. And he says that is that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified freely by his grace. Again, the word justified is a legal term. It's a judicial term whereby a judge makes a declaration regarding a person's standing or position as he stands before him. And this is what the Bible is telling us, that we are justified by God through faith. This is where we get the term, the doctrine of justification by faith. And justification by faith, or being justified, which these chapters speak of, speaks of how God judicially declares a guilty sinner to be righteous in his sight as the result of their faith in his son Jesus Christ. It's where God judicially declares a, yes, guilty sinner righteous in his sight through their faith in his son Jesus Christ. As the just judge at the moment of your salvation, when you accepted Jesus Christ by faith as your Savior and Lord, God made a judicial decree from an eternal and spiritual standpoint and he justified you at that instant. He gave you a position of righteousness, a new standing, and it indicates how God not just forgave your sin, but he also imputed into our accounts all of the righteousness of Jesus that we might approach him now and have access into heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, if you can imagine in your mind, imagine having a large, massive debt massive, massive debt that you can't afford to pay off. And I hope I'm saying this theoretically and it doesn't apply to any of you in this room. But imagine you have a massive debt. There's no way that you can pay that thing off. And somebody wealthy comes along who for some reason graciously loves you and says, you know, look, I want to pay off your debt. You want to pay off my debt? Yeah, I want to pay off your debt. What can I do? Nothing. I don't want you. I don't want anything from you. I want to pay off your debt. They pay off your debt. Wow, my debt's paid off. Wow, I can't believe this person paid off my debt. And then you go down to the bank to draw out your $20 and they say, hey, do you want your balance on that? And when they give you your balance, it says there's $1.5 million in your account. $1.5 million? And you realize that person didn't just pay off my debt. They made a massive deposit into my account on top of paying off my debt. See, this is justification. God wipes out your debt of sin and then he deposits into your spiritual bank account all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All the wealth of the righteous. So when, when God looks upon you, he doesn't see you in your sin. God looks upon you and he sees you positionally robed in the righteousness of a son and you have that same access, access by grace and through faith to come before God in that righteous condition. And that spiritual transaction happened at the moment that you were saved. The moment that you accepted Jesus Christ, it's a position. Hear me again, it's a position of righteousness. I realize we might have made a lot of mistakes in the past, and despite your failures in the past, God sees you positionally righteous in Jesus. I don't care what you've done in your past. And even presently, I know our performance, it's not always perfect still. We still fall short. We don't live perfectly righteous. But yet, nonetheless, we have a standing of righteousness and our practice of spiritual faithfulness or not does not alter. It doesn't alter this position. You are righteous by faith. Judicially, God sees you innocent and righteous in Jesus Christ. And the way that God can do that so freely is because there's a just basis of because of what Jesus did. 
and the way it's received as a gift. That's what he's telling us here. He says we receive this freely, justified freely, no cost, no strings attached, and it's by God's grace, it's through his grace, which indicates there's nothing of merit in us that makes us worthy of it. By his grace indicates it's only because of his gracious nature. I think we have to remember this because please recognize there's nothing in us. There's nothing in us that makes God want to forgive and justify us. There's not some measure of worth. And, well, I mean, I, he is pretty cute. I mean, I'll give him that at least. He can be really cute sometimes. No. The idea of by his grace indicates it's all because of God's gracious nature. It has nothing to do with the recipient. It has to do with the one who's giving the benevolent gift, that God is so gracious that he does what he does. Now, we might ask, well, wait a minute. What about all the people who died prior to the time of, of Christ who sinned as well but had faith in Jesus? Well, that's what he's answering in the next verses here. He says to demonstrate, verse 25, his righteousness because of his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just, notice, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what he's saying here is that God graciously, in a sense, in his forbearance, held back the punishment for all the sins of humanity previously committed of those who had faith in the coming Messiah that was still yet ahead to come to demonstrate his righteousness for those who believed in the promise of the Messiah to come, God temporarily withheld the punishment he could have meted out so that once Jesus came and completed his work, God could justify everyone by the same faith in the person and finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. I love this statement in Romans 3 here that God is just and the justifier of those who believe. God remains completely just. He can't compromise his justice. In his incredible love, he has a way of remaining completely just and at the same time justifying those who choose to believe in Jesus. God stays just, but he comes up with an incredible way being totally just to say, yep, so my son took the punishment. I'll make a sacrifice in my love and then I have a just basis to stay just and also at the same time be the justifier of anyone who believes. Paul goes on then kind of in a, just a responsive way in conclusion here to say, well, where then is boasting? Where's bragging, he says? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, he says, but by the law of faith. Therefore, again, it's repetitious and purposely, we conclude, we resolve, he says, you know, we, we, we can't ignore the fact that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So because of the universal way where each person is freely made right with God, because of what Jesus has done for us and God giving as a gift to us, Paul comes to this place where he says, would you please all agree with me? He says, there's no grounds for pride here. There's no grounds for, for anything to think of, of good of us. He says, all we did was believe upon and accept the gift that God was offering to us. He says, where is bragging and boasting? Again, the picture, if I can put it in your mind, in essence, Paul's saying, picture a drowning person in the ocean. They're caught in a riptide. And they are going down, they're going to drown, they're stuck in a riptide, and yet a lifeguard comes and risks their life. And they swim out there risking their own life, and they snatch that person, and they pull them to safety, and they save their life. Does that drowning person have any grounds to boast about what he did in the process? Um, whoa, yeah, I, mean, I know. I, 
after they're dragged to the shore, half dead. You know, I, I am pretty special. I mean, do you know what it took to let that guy save me? Right? I mean, that'd be ludicrous, right? And this is what the Bible's saying. Look, where's their grounds for any arrogancy spiritually in the life of a person who truly understands their salvation by Jesus Christ? He says that should drive a measure of humility into a person's heart. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Verse 29. Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, also of the Gentiles, since there is one God, again, who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. So again, no partiality in God's acceptance of people, nor does he exclude anyone, Jew, Gentile, a person who very irreligious and very immoral, or a person who was very religious and very moral. Both come to the same conclusion. Both come to God on their same terms. He accepts both alike. Again, with God, there's no partiality and acceptance, and there's no exclusion to anybody who wants to come. Now, this is wonderful because, again, that's hard to imagine because that's not how people are in our world. In our world, people exclude one another. You know, it's hard to get acceptance sometimes in our world because of who we are, who we're not, and, and, but yet, listen, with God. There's free acceptance. It does not matter this morning who you are or what you have done. Because of God and who He is, there is always acceptance in coming to God. Always acceptance. It does not matter what has taken place. He will forgive and receive you if you approach Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, do we then make void or of no effect the law through faith? Certainly not, again, he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. So he says, we're not saying that the law has no effectiveness or no value. Certainly not. In fact, he says, we uphold the law because the law is what helps a man realize his sinfulness and seek a savior. And this is where Paul transitions, as we'll see next week, moving in to this very thought process. But let me leave you with a final thought or two in relation to this morning's text, which would simply be this. When we truly understand that it's everything that God has done for us that makes us righteous, that should bring a tremendous measure of humility into a person's life before God and before each other. You know, if you're struggling with humility this morning, maybe it's because you really don't have quite a grasp on the wretch you are and the reach it took for God to save you freely from your condition. And maybe you ought to ask God to reveal that to you. At times I aim to ask God to reveal that to me to help me to come back into proper perspective and bring a little more humility back into my temperament sometimes. You know, the wonderful reality of justification by faith as well is it gives us incredible confidence and comfort too to realize how wonderful that despite your shortcomings still, you already have a righteous standing before God. Listen, Christian, you don't have to earn God's approval. Stop trying to earn his approval. You have his approval. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, yeah, maybe you messed up recently. Maybe you've fallen short. Maybe you still fail and get frustrated with yourself. But you don't have to earn back a good standing with God. You have a righteous standing with God because of what Jesus has done. Rejoice in that. Enjoy that. And when you realize that reality, your Christian life changes from being a set of obligations to being a responsive appreciation for what Jesus has done for you.